1: of the good music podcast i'm lucas and i'm grant
0: and if you are a lover of all things good music be sure to follow us on facebook and instagram at good music podcast you'll get updates on all of the new episodes that we have each week and you can suggest your favorite artist and you might just see them on an episode in the future but if you consider your music like a fine wine then check out our patreon page there's a link in the description and you'll get access to episodes early and you'll also get access to the exclusive bad music podcast which you do at the end of every episode and talk about the worst songs of every artist and it's more interesting than you would think but today we are going to get into kind of a different ish
1: genre maybe not i don't know how to describe this artist who are we talking about lucas we're talking about a uh, great pop duo known by the name of Daryl Hall and John Oates. Most people refer to them as Holland Oates, but that's actually never a name that they themselves have endorsed okay. or appears on any of their album covers. It's always been Daryl Hall and John Oates because those are the two main guys.
0: See, I always thought that when people referred to uh, Daryl Hall and John Oates as the full thing, they were like uninformed and like, Oh, of course, you don't know Hall and Oates, the band, but <laughs> I that just show what I know. I guess we're already getting into first thoughts, so let's do something different, Lucas. You can have your first thoughts first. We never, Ooh,
1: okay. Well, I've been a Holland Oates fan, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna say Holland Oates just for, for the sake of simplicity, right? Like everyone does. Um, so don't say oh you just said oh I'm just It's. it'll be an easier thing to do um, I've been a Holland Oats fan for a very long time um, they were part of that uh, initial wave of music that I got on that my dad is a, a very big Holland Oats fan and so they were kind of one of the first groups that I remember listening to and going oh wow I really like this this is cool so, um, some of these songs I've probably been listening to longer than most other music that I listen to. So, but I, for a long time, I only heard, like, four or five of their songs. So, like, because when I got the iPod, I didn't have, like, full albums of theirs or even, mm-hmm. like, a Greatest Hits. It was just, like, my dad just kind of, like, put his four or five favorite ones mm-hmm. So I had heard songs like "Say It Isn't So" and "You Make My Dreams" and uh, "Rich Girl" and "Sarah Smile." All of those have kind of I've listened to many, many, many times uh, over the years, but I was still kind of a bit oblivious of them. Like I didn't really know who they were. And there was a large collection of their hits that I went a long time without either hearing or knowing was them. Like it was ended up being a really long time before I heard songs like man eater and kiss on my list. And I can't go for that. I didn't know
0: that man eater was a Hollow Notes song.
1: Yep. That's awesome. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I would say like probably like five years ago was when I, I, kind of grew more into Holland Oats to where it's like, I got to the point where I could probably like know every song on a greatest hits, but still never got to the point of like listening to full albums and going into the deep cuts. they are a band that, you know, if I hear one of their songs on the radio, I'd be like, Oh, this is a great song. I'm going to listen to it. And every now and again going, you know what? I want to listen to this Holland Oats song. So, uh, that my starting probably like a 80. a low to medium seven. That's not bad. Yeah, I I didn't find myself often like searching them out to to listen and find the all of the different uh you know deeper tracks, but I absolutely loved all the stuff that I did know about, and definitely respected and understood them as being great musicians and songwriters well good so how about
0: you so I'm I think I'd have to put myself at around a six because and it's not so much Hall and Oates but more just Daryl Hall himself I used to watch live at Daryl's house Mm. and of course, when he would do episodes with, like, Joe Walsh or Billy Gibbons or, um, you know, an artist that doesn't necessarily sing but they still want to do their songs, he would pick up the vocals. I'm like, oh, actually, he's really good. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that he was, like, a very personable guy. And his show was really interesting. He always had, you know, the most interesting rock icons on there. um, And... I don't know if that show was still going. I didn't watch a whole lot of it necessarily like it's a, a cool I, show. I didn't watch a high percentage of the episodes, but I watched it for right. a long period of time. Their cheap um, trick one is really cool. His drummer plays backhanded and I thought that was pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, but that was when I first learned about that. And then Maneater, like I just now figured out that was a hollow and Oats song like I just now connected the dots. <laughs> but that used to be on a um, like a CD with about 20 songs that my grandpa gave me when I was like four or something. Oh, wow. <laughs> I would play it over and over again. And it had like some ABBA on there. And so,
1: kind of like a, a sampling of 70s and 80s pop.
0: It was, just, yeah. And there's was, there was, like some ACDC, I think, too. Um, And so, yeah. And so that song was on there. And so I've known that song for. Obviously, a very long time. And then, of course, everybody knows the big ones, you know, especially You Make My Dreams Come True. I can't go for that. I don't know if it's a Tulsa cover band thing or if that's just a cover band thing, but every cover band in Tulsa does that song. Mm-hmm, including
1: uh, including my dad's band that he does sometimes. Right. And so I like those songs and i
0: I can't find anything wrong with them. But there was never a drive for me to go like, ooh, I should listen to more Holland Oates. You know. And my mom would sometimes sing Private Eyes whenever, you know, I was being mischievous when I was younger. And I just now <laughs> discovered that that was, not, that was a Holland Oates song. I'm like, hmm. So
1: Yeah, Holland Oates has written so many songs that have kind of pierced that public consciousness. Right a lot of people know a good portion of their songs but maybe don't connect the dots that it's them
0: yeah it's very a steve miller band kind of
1: kind yeah of which i mean you're lucky in a group to ever write one song like that and they've yeah. got an entire collection of songs that fit that description so let's
0: let's talk about the group is it just them and how do the other musicians rotate in what's the policy on that
1: so yeah, obviously the name as the name implies, like that's the core of the group. Okay. And um the, the rest of the band to certain degrees um are um rotating. Definitely I would say for their entire seventies career, like they exclusively used session musicians. Okay. So it was just about whoever was the right people to bring in. You usually it depended on whatever producer they had for that record, because their whatever producer they had would kind of go bring in their guys. Right, but and then usually then- also the uh, the session group never matched the tour group, so it was a it was a constant influx. I would say mostly so in the seventies of just kind of whoever was available come in, but the core is. Uh-huh. Is Daryl Hall and John Oates? Um, Daryl Hall, he obviously is the lead singer. Okay. Uh, he's the guy in the on all the record covers with the blonde hair, kind of skinny guy, clean shaven. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also does he'll use as well. So um, now when he's on, a lot of times when he's on stage, he'll be playing rhythm guitar. Mm-hmm. But um a lot of the a lot of the keyboard parts are played by him in the studio, and then you know they'll they'll occasionally have you know kind of supplementary keys parts played by other musicians, but if it's like a lead keys line it's it's like and that's and that's usually the instrument that he composed on as well more wow. of guitar John Oates. Is the lead guitar player? Oh, whilst and sometimes lead vocalist, I would say like probably like twenty percent of their songs are sung by John Oates, mm-hmm. and obviously he's a very big component of the background vocals, doing a lot of the harmonies. Wow, and um, and so yeah, he's he's playing most guitar lines. So is Daryl the chief songwriter? Or
0: he is very collaborative?
1: It's it's pretty collaborative. Uh, Daryl is definitely the lyricist of the group. And then it kind of is 50-50 on kind of who brings the initial idea for a song. Um, a lot of times it'll be John kind of comes first, just like, hey, I've got this. Usually he'll come up with a chord progression and a a very rough draft of a lyric. Um, and then usually Daryl will kind of take it and run with it. Or sometimes Daryl will be the one that is hit with a burst of inspiration and, and kind of come up with the, the song idea. So I would hmm. say if you count lyrics, I would say that it's probably like... 70-30 in Daryl's favor as far as songwriting, but that's mostly due to the fact that Daryl's doing a large portion of the lyric writing. Hmm. So is it but... like sticks were able to tell
0: kind of whose idea it was, or is it somewhat homogenous?
1: No, it's pretty homogenous because they um, have almost identical musical taste and instinct.
0: Oh, that's nice.
1: They It helps that they both which was Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And they were, they're pretty much the same age, uh, met each other when they were in college and were inspired by all the same groups and had the same vision of what they wanted to do. So it wasn't as much a kind of two very different people coming in to make something strange. It was more of two very like-minded Musicians kind of combining their forces, wow,
0: you don't hear about that a lot mm well.
1: now, personality and persona wise they're very different from each other right I can tell and and because i you'll notice John oates is he's very he's the more particular looking guy in the group with the big old bushy mustache yeah that's that's almost like become just an eighties icon in of itself. <laughs> I would say even more so than some of their songs. John's mustache is the most famous thing of Holland Oats. <laughs> wow, it's up there with Freddie Mercury's mustache as far as musical mustaches go.
0: He he sounds kind of like a uh,
1: like a lead from the rear kind of uh, musician. Yeah, so he is definitely the quieter member of the group. That kind of became a big part of his persona. Is that like he was. He never would smile. He was old. he was he was a lot shorter than Daryl. And so he was just kind of like this like this this creeping little guy that would just like look at the camera with this very serious face and this big old mustache. And um but in his private life he was the extravagant one. He Oof. he was the one that was, you know, buying cars and planes and and living at the most extravagant places, going to the most extravagant restaurants.
0: And Daryl like, wasn't?
1: No, Daryl was a much more reserved guy in the, in the public life. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, he, he still, you know, went along with a lot of that stuff. But John was the more um, present person off stage. Interesting. He kind of – he was kind of the one that lived more of the rock and roll lifestyle. Okay. So, so how it's...
0: did – go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. I was, I was going to go to a different – completely different thing, but – Yeah, go ahead. Um, like how did they um, get to like their rise to fame? Like
1: how did that track? Okay. So – um. We'll We'll talk also a little bit about their influences because that kind okay. of determines their trajectory. So okay. uh, an interesting thing, and this is really the first time that I've come across this, like especially when you're talking about musicians of that era, they'll always talk about you know, the Beatles, the Beatles, the Beatles were the most important thing when that happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the, they weren't too impressed when the Beatles came. That their Beatles were the <laughs> Temptations. Oh, which was I a really
0: uh,
1: yeah. Um, they were a Motown vocal group. So, it um, was the most important thing in Philadelphia. It was a very it was a very soulful city as far as the music goes, mm-hmm. and so it's more about R and B and blues and jazz rather than. Pop and rock and roll. Now, of course, that that still was a factor, but it wasn't the important factor. Mm-hmm. But you know, they both are similar to other every every other musician. As in, like Elvis was very important to them. Mm-hmm. But when the Beatles came around, they they didn't pay it, attention to it as much. Now, the later, it's kind of they turn to and go, okay, this, this is really cool. This is really significant. Uh, John would actually become pretty good friends with George Harrison in the 70s. In the nice.
0: Friends of the Beatles.
1: That's not bad. Yeah, that's, that's, that's good company to have. But yeah, so they, they were much more influenced and inspired by just very vocal music. If, you, if you'll notice in their songs that it's not as important to, to show off instrumentality. you really Even though John Oates is a great guitar player, you'll rarely hear a guitar solo from him.
0: No, that's true.
1: It's, it's not what's important to them. It's more important to have as many vocal parts as possible. And that the instrumentation is just there to support that. The vocals are always the most important thing in Holland Oates music. So um, Daryl and John met up in the late sixties. I think it was 68 when they first met. And um, it was about a year later when eventually uh, Daryl or John moved in with Daryl at his apartment. And, when they moved in together, that's when they started to try and write songs together. And they said immediately they knew that there was chemistry that they're like, okay, we we make something special. We need to pursue this. And Good. so, um, they ended up recording their first record in 71. I believe it was 71. I can fact check that. <laughs> um, but it was early 70. So the big thing, in pop music in the early seventies or one of the big things was the, um, the singer songwriter movement. Um, This is, this is the movement when artists like Elton John and Neil Young and, um, you know, Jackson Brown, Mm -hmm. these, these were the kinds of artists that were starting to get really big. Joni Mitchell, um, just these, these artists that it wasn't, as much about the band, but it was about the uh, the, the, the songs and the, the intimacy of just kind of like one person just like strumming a guitar and singing, or playing a piano and singing, just kind of pure songwriting. Ah, uh, okay. Seventy two. That's when their debut came out. So that was that was the big thing of the early seventies. It's how a lot of those artists came to fame and so they were a part of they wanted to get in on that initial movement their first album is very folky it's very like acoustic guitar driven and nice warm fender Rhodes keys um there's not there's not any aggressive rockers or really any like big pop songs on it it's very stripped back it's very you know nice and easy very soulful um, again, just you can hear right at the beginning that the vocals is what's most important and lyrics that are going to tell you a story rather than just kind of very simple, straight lyrics. So did that album do very well? No, it flopped horribly. Oh, really? <laughs> mm hmm.
0: I mean, even though they followed the trend, I guess they didn't do the trend very well.
1: Uh, they just they weren't on a great um, label. And mm. they didn't get great promotion. And you know, their songwriting hadn't matured yet. We'll, we'll, we'll see a song or two in the bottom six from that record. Just they were young, they didn't, even though they had those inspirations, they didn't quite know what they wanted to do or who they were yet. They definitely mm. did a lot of trend chasing. In their early period, like their third record is kind of like a psychedelic prog record. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I'm. An it's idea. cool in theory, but it's not executed very well. Just because again, that's not their strength. How long did um, it take for them to get there?
0: I mean, or are we gonna are we so four, So
1: fourth. So the fourth record was the breakout record. Okay. And it's mainly due to the song "Sarah Smile." That was their first hit. Uh and also that album cover was very um headline grabbing i should say it's that it's that famous black and white image of them with lots of makeup daryl hall looks like not just a woman but a beautiful woman and john oates with that with that mustache because that's the first album that they're on the cover of so it was the first time that people kind of were introduced to that that look, and there was a lot of rumors that they were lovers, and that Daryl was a transvestite and <laughs> that it was you know for nineteen seventy five that's that's quite controversial, right, but it also got a lot of people talking, and then you um you add that with Sarah Smile, which I believe went all the way to number four on the pop charts. Oh, wow. And, yeah, then all of a sudden, it was like, boom! They uh, they won the Grammy for Best New Artist, and they are like, we're not new. This is our fourth album. <laughs> Just people had no idea. And then, what's interesting is that after that, they released She's Gone, which is off their second album, and it went all the way nice when originally they had released that as a single a couple years previous and it did nothing didn't even get into wow. the top 40 so it was it so, was the
0: controversy
1: well i wouldn't i would say that the the song got there first but then the 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 controversy pushed it forward okay cuz cuz uh yeah the song the song came first i believe so um because the record had been out for like and point and they didn't intend to release really sarah smile as a single it was actually the b-side to a different single and the radio jockeys flipped over the side and they're like this song is better let's play this one instead and they started getting phone calls asking people who is this we and uh, we want to hear more of this wow and it was kind of like it was an unexpected hit Nice. So, I guess they are touring now at this point. Yes, at that point they get to be headliners, and then on next record, bigger than the both of us, that's when they get their first number one with "Rich Girl," okay. and that was that was. I was just like, "Okay, okay. we're we're big time now," because it. I talk a lot about on the podcast about how difficult it is to get a number one. Right. It seems it seems so trivial. Okay, yeah, you know the great, all the great artists have number ones, right? And that's actually not true. We've talked mm-hmm. about how artists like The Who, uh, Springsteen, Bob Dylan, AC/DC, Journey—they don't have number ones. Journey. Wow, that's a surprising. Question. Yeah, they do, <laughs> they don't. That's you would. It's kind of crazy to think a song like "Don't Stop Believing" never went to number one. Yeah. That's like one of that's one life. of the biggest songs of all time.
0: Yeah. So, I guess we're still in the mid '70s.
1: Yes. So that was '76, and they actually had a bit of a lull period after that. There was a lot of pressure to keep. Now that they knew that that their label knew that they could make number ones, they were like, "Okay, we need more number ones. Come on, come on. Where's the next hit?" And. That wasn't what was as important to them. They were like, we just want to make good songs. We're not going to, like, intentionally just try and write number one singles. If, if we write a song that happens to be a number one single, cool. But it's, we're not going to chase after it. They didn't want to do a big generator. No. <laughs> so they... um so they had a couple records after that where there was this, there was this waning in popularity. They said that at the time that uh, "Rich Girl" was number one, they were headlining sold out twenty thousand seat arenas. Oh, and nice! By and by seventy nine, they were back to uh, half filled twenty five hundred seat arenas or mm. stages. And so they were, you know, that was they felt like that uh, was disappearing. Yeah. Uh, okay, that was our one huge hit. And you know, my, it might have been time to move on. And then nineteen, 19- and um, with their sound again, not attempting to try and get huge hits, but they had a huge oh, smash hit on that album called "Kiss on My List," and that's that a not. Yep. Not only did that go number one, but it was like one of the biggest songs of that year. Oh, I think wow. it was like the sixth biggest song of nineteen eighty or something like that. And once that happened, it was kind of like a new rise to fame happened. And that's kind of begins the period that everyone is familiar of, their eighties period. Mm. When everyone thinks of Hollow Notes, they tend to think of that uh, that huge eighties period because they got five number one hits from 80 to 84 which is insane wow so six number ones total so they had kiss on my list that went number one and the 81 privatized record came out they had two number ones off that one <laughs> um with privatized the title track and i can't go for that um the year after that um was h20 and that had man eater that went to number one and then in 84, they released a Big Bang Boom, and that had a number one with Out of Touch. Wow. And they're they're racking them up. That was one of probably, probably the greatest uh winning streaks wow. in pop history. Wow. A few people had a better four-year run from 80 to 84. So, so.
0: that was a good run, so then... What brought the
1: end of that? So by 80, which they were still riding high on the success of the Big Bang Boom record, they just felt Mm -hmm. exhausted. Daryl had said that he knew that kind of their time was ending. He was Mm -hmm. just like he didn't know where they could go from here. And he sensed that they were going to start going down, even though there was no signs at the time. That they were Mm -hmm. going down. In fact, they were getting bigger. Mm -hmm. But he just had this feeling is just like, it's not going to get better than this. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: No one writes hits forever. Mm -hmm. No one, no one stays the biggest group in the world forever. At some point, you got to come down. And he thought to himself, why don't we just disband before that happens? (laughs) Wow. And he That's weird. told he told John about it, and John felt the same way. He was just like, you know what? I think it's time. We're exhausted. We've been going nonstop for fifteen years. Yeah, to step back, pursue our own interests, and figure out what life is like that doesn't involve Holland Oats. Wait, so pursue their own interests?
0: So they each had, I guess, solo careers.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Uh, none, none, of, none of them were near the level of them together.
0: Okay.
1: Um, they also, you know they they did some collaborative work with uh, other guests. They they got to be on We Are the World. They're among the voices in that chorus. And um, the unfortunate thing is that as soon as they decided to step away, they found out they were bankrupt. Oh,
0: that's unfortunate.
1: So they couldn't really rest and enjoy their success because they realized that they didn't have They got kind of screwed by their manager.
0: Yeah, because they were writing number ones all over the place. How do you go bankrupt?
1: Because their manager decided, kept working with the record label to give them all their cash up front. And they spent it all, thinking that there was more yeah wow they they got advances on all their royalties, so they didn't get royalty checks mm. they, so they're not
0: they're not making money off of every time we listen.
1: Well, they are now, okay. but at the time they weren't in the mid eighties, so that actually made them have to go back into the studio, and because of that, they didn't make records. Next couple records that came after that, they weren't making them because they were musically inspired, but because they needed to pay the bills. And that's kind of officially when the quality of Holland Oats suffered.
0: Was it like suffered, like not as good, or did it
1: really
0: decrease?
1: Um, didn't get to like really get that far in when i was doing my ranked playlist oh. just because up to that point it was a it was a ton of music yeah <laughs> but the, the little bit i've heard it's kind of like yeah it's good but it's it sounds like most of the music that artists make when they're past their prime
0: mm.
1: Whereas it's just like yeah it's okay it's not it's not world conquering it's not oh my gosh this is really inspired it's just hey you made a song So I guess they predicted it after all. Yeah, just it wasn't in the way that they thought. It's really unfortunate. Yeah. And that first half of the 80s, they pretty much owned it. They were, I would say that they were among the most successful groups of the 80s. They've sold like, I think, 50 million records. (sighs) Wow! They're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, they are officially the most successful duo in pop history.
0: That's a title
1: as far as records and number ones like they they beat out even Simon and Garfunkel. Wow, so I mean they they achieved something incredibly significant and they. Still, when people think back to the 80s, Holland Oats will tend to be one of the first things that comes to mind. And it really helped that they did really well on MTV. In fact, they were among the first artists to jump into MTV and start making music videos. Um, One of the reasons that Private Eyes got so big was that that was kind of among the first groups of videos when MTV launched. Wow. They were kind of they got in on the ground floor and because of that they got a lot of early exposure. Kind of they they saw the potential of music videos before a lot of other artists did.
0: So they you went look at from it. trends chasing to trend setting.
1: Yeah. I would say they the definitely ease. did. They helped they helped to set the, the stage for what an MTV music video is like. Wow. That's awesome.
0: That is awesome. Wow.
1: And they were like, and they were a lot older and more experienced than most everyone else that was putting videos on at that time. Wow. You got to think when they were doing that, they were 10 plus years into their career. Yeah. That's see, that's such a weird thing. I used to think that Hall and Oates was like a
0: seventies band. Well, I mean they, in a way they were technically, technically they are. I mean, cause you think about like the intro to you make my dreams, right? That's mm-hmm. that's just, that's a very simple keyboard sound. That doesn't sound 80s. I mean, you know, maybe early 80s, but when you think well, 80s it, keyboard, you think like jump, you know?
1: Yeah, well, it was, it came out in 80. That's true. So it was on that same record as uh, Kiss on My List, but that one actually didn't go to number one. It went to like number five. Wow. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, they, they were one of those rare groups that got to have two chances. Yeah, because like mid seventies, they, they got, got huge. I mean, you get a number one single, that's that puts you in pretty good spot. And then they got in the eighties, so they got to be a quintessential seventies band and a quintessential eighties band. And yeah, it sounds like most of had the. To- had the couple
0: years to regroup, you know, regroup. There's two, yeah. of them. but like to rethink, to re, uh, imagine their formula. So when they really got it right, they had the platform. It was kind of a perfect storm for lack of a better term.
1: It really was. They, um, they just, they really got to figure out how to, how to reinvent themselves. And, Yeah, just most artists don't get to have two decades. Yeah. And to have two decades where they sound completely different, but yet at the same time, they'll tell it's them.
0: That is so weird. Yeah, we we have some songs that span between those decades. So,
1: yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to, I didn't make it an even mix to have three songs, 80s, three songs, 70s, but still, I wanted, I didn't want to just concentrate on the 80s period. I wanted to throw in some 70s songs as well. And then in future Holland episodes, we can we can specify, and go, okay, let's do an episode on just the 70s stuff. Right. Because there's enough quality material definitely to talk about it. And then we can do another one, like, uh, in the 80s. Wow. So, yeah, they, um, they really Brought a a soulfulness to pop, but Legacies Daryl Hall is the best pop singers ever. Really, and something that I had pointed out to you earlier when we were listening to the songs was that he's one of the best uh, improv. That I oh heard. yeah, because part, part of the, the part of the Holland Oates song formula, especially in the eighties. Is you you they do a fade out on the chorus, but instead of just fading out on them singing the chorus, it's you usually have the BGVs singing, and then Daryl's just kind of going off and doing what whatever he wants vocally, just riffing. Hmm. And goodness gracious, he is so good at it. Yeah, and he's not—he's doing fairly complex stuff as well. Like he's not just like. Doing, you know, oohs and ahs. Like, he's doing, like, legitimate vocal runs that I've tried to copy before, and I'm like, oh, have complete vocal control to get through some of those passages. And you could tell just in his attitude and the way he's singing that he's making it up as he goes. He had that strong of a control on his voice that he could Mm. just go and not even think about it.
0: And some real complex rhythm control too that you Mm -hmm. know you think about like the instruments that he's playing right piano and guitar and he's a vocalist those aren't three things that you necessarily uh, find synonymous with rhythm you know so i know that yeah that's a stereotype of guitar players at least that we have no rhythm
1: Uh uh-huh yeah and uh, we we talked we we talked earlier about how holland oates music isn't complex that's true except for in the fact of the vocals taller right. notes uh, even though and this is where really a lot of their brilliance lies they're they're simple enough that they're they've got great hooks that stick with you yet if you try to sing them they're actually quite difficult yeah you have, you, you find that you got to really concentrate on getting your uh, pitch correct, and then yeah. on top of that, just the 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 charisma that he puts in it. That again, he's it doesn't sound like he's concentrating; he's just naturally singing. And he's in the way he's inflecting. It's just it's he's he is a complete vocal master. Mm-hmm. I my dad had told say maybe besides Phil Collins, he might be the greatest pop songwriter of the 80s.
0: And he's got that range, too.
1: Yes. You know, he doesn't necessarily show it
0: off, but some of these songs that we're going to listen to, they're, they're kind of up there. Mm-hmm. And John Oates's BGVs are tight on pitch. Yeah. Man.
1: John, I'm, it's going to sound like throughout this episode that we're just going to talk about Daryl, 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 Daryl. And, I mean, that's easy to do, but just because he's the most apparent member in these songs just because he's right. got the lead vocal duty but John is the glue that holds everything together he's yeah. really honestly one of the most selfless members in pop history mm-hmm. I mean yes he's as just as far as he obviously has a very famous name and has a very famous image but as far as in the music he never overplays He's often doing stuff that's so simple mm-hmm. that you almost would be thinking, "Oh, he's just not that good." But he is. There are deep tracks where he will have rare moments to kind of let loose, and he's not like a shredder, like you know Jimmy Page. But he's someone that has a lot of chops and a lot of ability, and he's a great singer. The he's times a great he does. Singer. What, the time that he does, does take a lead vocal it's really good and I, he just he knows exactly what the song needs and doesn't add anything to it
0: right and he, those BGV's make the song like man especially our first one so mm-hmm. yes, I say we should go ahead and get to the songs but before we get to that what should we be listening for
1: Obviously, we need to be listening for some really great vocals. The vocals are key. Um, listen for some really cool chord progressions. That was another thing that Daryl in particular was really good at. And what he would often, whenever John would bring a song, uh, one of the biggest things that he would change musically is the chord progressions. Mm-hmm that was kind of one of his strong suits as far as songwriting goes is, is coming up with a great chord progression. Mm. And one of the things that's just so interesting when you listen to one is hearing that unexpected chord come in
0: yeah. and it's like,
1: Ooh, Ooh, that, that, that makes it sound so much more interesting. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then just listen for great pop songs it's yeah. <laughs> just it's simple, pure song pop songwriting, but yet again they they figured out a way to write simple songs in a way that only sounds like them. Yeah, and I would I would say the biggest reason why it sounds like them is the amount of soul that's in it. They I mean, it, they it's
0: so easy to remember the hook from every single one of these songs just by looking at the title.
1: Uh huh. They are
0: good pop songwriters.
1: They figured out how to put 60s R and B into 80s pop, and I think that that's probably the thing that made them stand out the most. Because so if you for take the away Stevie all Wonder influence, yeah, if you take away all the all the 80s production mm-hmm. and you put 60s and early 70s um, instrumentation and producing on those exact same songs they would feel at home there it just it sounds like the 80s because of the instruments and the production and the keyboards and the synths and all that and the drum machines that's what gives it its 80 accessibility but you take all that away and this is this is 60s 70s songwriting all right. And I think that I think that that was the secret sauce.
0: The secret sauce. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> All right. So when we come back, we are going to uh, get into the six songs that we have picked for this episode to introduce you to Holland oaks So stay tuned. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about Daryl Hall and John Oates, known by many as Hall and & Oates. And now it's time to get into our six-song segment. Hopefully, these six songs will provide a great introduction to the band Hall & Oates for you guys. If you want to listen to those songs, down in the description of every episode, there is a link to a Spotify playlist with the songs from every single episode. Not only this one, but all of the ones previous. And if you're listening in the future, all the ones after. So you'll definitely want to check out these songs. It would be a shame if you listened to this episode and did not hear these songs for yourself, especially this great pop music that we're going to talk about. And now it's time to get into our first song, You Make My Dreams, parentheses come true.
1: (laughs) I was hoping you'd add the parentheses. (laughs) (laughs) So like I said earlier, this was not a number one but I feel like that this has become the definitive Holland Oates song.
0: Oh, for sure.
1: Right. Everybody knows this. Yeah, it's been used in so many movies, so many TV shows, particularly that that great scene from 500 Days of Summer comes to mind. I don't know if you've seen that movie before. I have not. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, but if I remember correctly, um, the scene is um, – because it's a, it's a romance movie. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy who's played by um, Joseph Mm -hmm. Gordon-Levitt meets kind of like his dream girl, which Mm -hmm. was uh, Zoe Deschanel. And kind of like he, I can't remember if it's when he like meets her or whenever she agrees to like go on a first date or become his girlfriend. But there's like a montage of him like having this like street parade of happiness while this song is playing. (laughs) <laughs> like, like it's it's meant to be kind of, like, dr- dramatized, like, not realistic. Like, there's random strangers coming and doing, like, choreographed dance with him. And he's, you know, like, there's, like, a crowd of 50 people with him. They're doing, like, this huge, like, joyful dance. And that's exactly the spirit of this song. This is, like, one of the happiest, most upbeat songs probably <laughs> ever. Yeah.
0: I would say probably ever. I mean, literally, the title
1: is come true you know Mm-hmm. it's it's got so much bounce that that keyboard line yeah just that that's to call the it's it's the it's the bouncy nature i mean the drums are just do like and the guitars are muted like the only even the vocals are kind of coming in very uh just boom 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 and then, and then he'll break it up by doing a sustained note. But that the whole feeling of the song is just this, this bouncy nature, mm-hmm. and and it really gets you moving. It's it's really um, a
0: Mister Blue Sky kind of a song. Yes, it's really got the same meter and the same feel to it too. That you kind of have to have a kick in your step, you know. Uh huh. So, but it's not you know a big. <coughs> coming at you type of song it's not overproduced it doesn't feel very 80s I mean like you said it is 1980
1: yeah 1980 kind of almost doesn't count as an 80s <clears throat> year the same way that 90 doesn't count as a 90s year
0: yeah that's true it
1: was 80s was a 1980 was a transitional year I would say 81 that was kind of like when yeah. the sound of the 80s really solidified. It's right. not true of seventy. 70 is a very 70s so but 70s in the 80s and 90s it took, it took a year to kind of figure out what the new direction was going to be because a lot of the big 80s groups still were really big in 1990. It was when 91 came around. Grunge yeah. happened and, and hip-hop and modern R&B kind of just really took the airwaves away Rock groups, but and and I would I would say yeah eighty, but yet at the same time it doesn't feel completely seventies. That's true. This is a song that when you hear it on an eighties station, it doesn't feel out of place. Mm -hmm. But you could also put it on seventies station, although that would be highly incorrect because it didn't come out in the seventies. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you were doing, like, a, a group of, like, if you were just doing, like, a like an oldies station and you played a bunch of 70s songs and then played this, you wouldn't be like, whoa, this sounds like it doesn't fit. Yeah. Not, not like a total eclipse of the heart kind of production where everything yes.
0: drenched in 80 pounds of reverb. Everything's still kind <laughs> of dry, you know? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, it's got the real natural, not necessarily raw, but very natural feeling to it.
1: I would say that keyboard is the main thing. That... Yeah.
0: And the vocals uh, are are pretty dry.
1: They're like, it's, it's almost relatable. Yeah. And like it's a relatable way to mix. And those background vocals, that's, that's where the sixties influence comes in that Ooh, that's they, they were, they were always a fan of, of doo-wop and, and just kind of that, that old school, again, the temptation, you go back to the temptations. That was their, that was their, they're Beatles. And so having those, ooh, doo 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 doo, and all that stuff, it's just that's, that's the spine of the song. Now, Daryl yeah, said that yeah. he, the way he was able to get that keyboard sound, I can't tell you what kind of keyboard it is because I'm just not literate in that kind of stuff, in, in gear and tech and all that. But he said that the keyboard he was using was like, that setting was like a factory setting on like a really cheap keyboard.
0: (laughs) And he said that he
1: in the, in the following years has tried to, um, tried to replicate that sound on like modern, more versatile keyboards. And he said that he's never been able to replicate it, that he finally just went and found an old version of that same keyboard, turned it on. was just like, yep, there it is. My dreams come true.
0: That's awesome. Those yeah, awesome. so I guess that's kind of how the song came about.
1: Yeah, musically. Now we we haven't talked about um the two silent songwriting partners that Daryl had. Okay. Um one of them, Sarah Allen and Sarah's sister Jana. Sarah had been since um since the mid seventies. That's actually who Sarah Smile is written about. Oh, that's nice. And they were they never got married but like fifteen years before they split up. Mm-hmm. That's that was another way that Daryl and John were very much different from each other. John was a hardcore womanizer. Very much lived the single life, where Daryl really just kind of stayed with his one girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Jana came around in eighty. And she is actually the one that was a big lyrical inspiration to Daryl. She was actually the one that came up with that line, You make my dreams come true, and was just like, You need you should write a song about that. And he was like, Oh, that's a good idea. Um, she came up with the idea for Kiss on My List. She was just like, Let's just let's just write the simplest song that we can Think of, let's not make the lyrics too deep or too um let's just let's just write something incredibly simple, and you know she she got him a number one hit. Wow so you, you Daryl would usually come up with most of the lyrics, but he would always bring the song to both of them to kind of help him fine tune it. And also, a lot of times they would they would provide that inciting incident. They would they would mention a, a phrase or a line, and he would go, "Oh, that that would be a good song." Uh, kind of so, like "Life in the Fast Lane," but over and over and over again. Yeah, intentionally. Also, like yeah. they would, they they would bring lines to him. Go, this is this is a great line. You should write a song about this. Hmm. So. They, they were the unsung um, heroes of Holland Oats, for sure. And it was not a Yoko Ono situation where mm-hmm. um, John resented having Daryl's girlfriend being a major songwriting partner.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He definitely was just like, yeah, she helps us write really good songs. <laughs> That's the- good. That's good. So, so they, he was he was, was very great. close with them.
0: So that's kind of the meaning of the song is, and I guess that could go with a lot of these songs is they don't necessarily have a
1: link to reality. But they, um, just... they, they sometimes do. Sometimes they don't. Well, we'll get into, I would say as far as songs on this list, I'd say it's like half and half. Okay. In fact, I will probably say specifically, it's the first half in the second half. But you know how these things tend to always work out. (laughs) So I guess these happy accidents.
0: I guess this first half is um, made up storylines and stuff. Yeah, more
1: (laughs) more written that uh, thing of just like, hey, let's just write a song about this. This, this could be a cool thing. And of course, you know, there'll be a certain level of personal experience to help, you know, go, oh, well, to give it some authenticity. Like, oh, I, I felt this way before, so I can, I can add in some little details. But it's not like a, this thing happened, now I need to write a song about it.
0: Okay.
1: Oh, well, cool. So, I think we can move on to the next one.
0: Yes, let's move on to the next one a number this, one this is a pretty good one this private eyes yes the watching you. A play on words
1: yes it's it's definitely a double meaning and i'm really embarrassed to say that it took me a long time to even think of the like private eye like detective i just oh, really? for some reason i always went with the more abstract meaning of of you know actual eyes see that that
0: album cover and private eyes makes me think private investigations so I went straight to that
1: for some reason that didn't dawn on me until much later I was just like oh of course <laughs> that's what it's actually about
0: so this so pretty one, much, once again we got the amazing BGVs we yep. got the interesting vocal lines the simple instruments mm-hmm. how did this song kind of what's the genesis for this one
1: so this was mostly from daryl this was a song that he brought to the table that he co-wrote with sarah and Jana. Mm-hmm. and um originally this song was going to be used for something else and it was called something else and then um he had seen a in theaters was just like oh i should make this about private eyes and that's kind of when the song turned into becoming about what it actually was about which is about a jealous lover that suspects that his woman is uh, doing the dirty with someone else. So he's, he's got private eyes, but I would say they're, they're metaphorical. He's pretty much, it's a, it's a, a s- s- more clever way to say that. I know what you're up to. I can see everything you're doing. Ah, A bit of the same Uh, theme as the who's I can see for miles he can't literally see for miles he's just saying that I might as well be because you're not as clever as you think I can see I can tell what's happening really the private eyes are his eyes even though he's using the um the metaphor of a detective saying that my private eyes can see everything that you're doing
0: hmm that is pretty good.
1: Simple, yet it's got a little bit of a layer to it.
0: I, I figured that's what it was. Well, and then when you said that um, Jane was wanting to write the simplest song, I'm like, these songs are already pretty simple, you know.
1: But I guess there is a little bit of layer song, to that one. Their songs were less simple in the 70s. Okay. So... You know, she definitely helped them to kind of trim a lot of fat with their songs and just be like, just get to the point. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, they had their they had their deeper cuts on a lot of those records that still would indulge in some of that, although it was a bit more few and far between. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I would say that. Even though the 70s period has a lot of interesting experiments in it, I do think that the 80s period is the better period. Just the songwriting is just overall stronger. They had more experience. Yeah, they, they had come through, because when you look at the, their 70s records, every record sounds drastically different than the one before. It was their, it was their time where they were t- really trying to figure out who are we. When you listen to songs in that period like Sarah Smile and Rich Girl, they actually are not really representative of the rest of the songs that they were making during that period. Hmm. It was kind of almost like they accidentally wrote some really huge songs. <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Like they they and it's and it's telling again that they didn't know that those were hit songs. They kinda had to be told by other people, hey, this is a hit song. And they were like, really? Oh okay, let's release it and see what happens. Oh, it went number one. <laughs> that's that's kind of funny. So, but at this point, uh John would talk about how like they were they would start writing on this song and they would instantly know, okay, this is gonna be a number one hit. Wow. They had they had a good sense at that point when a song was a winner.
0: That's good. It's good to have that when you're trying to write pop. But uh like you mentioned before what we should listen for, right? The interesting chord changes. We have one of those. Yes,
1: I I love the verse progression on this mm-hmm. song. Um you who's our who's more of our theory guy, do you do you kind of know what's going on here? Like what that what that chord is as far as relationship to I'd have to, I'd have to really listen to it again. I mean because that's
0: just the way that these songs are written they're going to pull your attention to the vocals uh-huh and i was mainly picking up on more of what was happening during the chorus you know when he like oh yeah cuz it, does, it
1: does yeah and it it does go to a place that weird there too. i guess the the verses strike me as as stranger that's true so i guess i don't notice the chorus But, yeah, now that you say it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, it does kind of go somewhere weird there as well. And it could be that it's not weird, and I'm just – my brain thinks it is. Well, it's – I think – I'm listening to it right now. I think that it's just uh,
0: like all the chords are major. And so, you know how when you play like E major and then a C major and a D major, it sounds kind of big and – epic and godlike in proportion they're Uh doing that with smaller instruments so it just it sounds weird but it sounds great (laughs) so uh
1: this is a bit of a rare chance where where john's John's guitar really kind of takes a strong presence in the song that's that's true there is that lead line yeah and he gets a solo after that second it's, chorus, he does a. It's 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 not a flashy solo. It's not one that you're like, oh my god. Yeah,
0: it's but, it's essentially a lead line.
1: Yeah, but it's it's man, a tasty little solo. It does exactly what it needs to do.
0: Oh, yeah, that's that's like the John Oates modus operandi. Is exactly <laughs> what it needs to be. It's it's very David Gilmour in that way. Yeah. Man, yeah, no. This is this is another very simple song with the really strong hook, but the really complex but strong hook. It's yes. almost like a like a uh, what's it called oxymoron. Uh-huh. But, uh huh. But we have another complex but real catchy vocal line. Yes. Next song,
1: I would say probably out of all of them, this is the one that probably has a lot or has the most hidden complexities of all of them.
0: Yeah. So this is Say It Isn't So.
1: Yeah, Say It Isn't So. So this this song I have found is among the most difficult ones to sing along to. And I didn't realize how difficult it was to sing along to until recently when I was getting ref- ready for this episode. And I just tried to, and I was just like, oh, actually, this is a tough lyric line. It's going to a lot of weird notes it's jumping a lot it's not you know the, the notes aren't close together and he's also adding some very interesting inflections. so if you want to sing it the way he's singing it it's you're gonna to have to really study it but man what a great song I feel like that this is kind of an underdog song for that I wouldn't definitely won't say it's a deep cut because this song went to number two. Hmm. Paul McCartney just had to hold him out of number one. Well, <laughs> oh, it was it, it was Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson. Oh, I was about to say it's not "Live and Let Die." No, it's no. That's like ten years previous. I see. I don't know my Paul McCartney history. <laughs> well, we'll have to change that at some point. Maybe uh, it, was, it was it was "Say Say Say," which I mean that was a monster hit in the '80s. And that was a yeah. That was a duet with Paul McCartney and Michael Jackson two of the biggest stars of all time so yeah Yeah. if you're going to get held out of number one by a song that's going to be one of the ones you'll want so then you can say well it's not my fault it was Paul and Michael Yeah, you can't compete against them but um, yeah it's just kind of like when people mention a lot of the great Hall & Oates songs I feel like that this one doesn't get brought up as much and it's a shame, because it's always been one of my favorites. It's pretty good. That whole intro is very reminiscent of
0: 90128, 90125, 9028. 90125.
1: 90125. Yeah. <laughs> the the, the, yes the 80s were full swing at this point, because this came out in 83. Okay. So it's, this, this
0: It's got a lot of little instrument moments, like that guitar strum.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Oh, and yeah, that guitar strum is so good. There's a little bit of bits and bobs here and there, but they never distract from that simple drum beat. Yeah. You know, that's essentially what's driving the song at that point before those backing vocals come in. So, and, man, I would say the backing vocals on this song are <laughs> almost more important. Yeah. That chorus, on that chorus... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it that's two notes that he's going between, but it's just over the perfect chords for it. And weird chords that really almost do not even fit in the scale. I can't quite tell what's happening here. It's almost like a Nirvana situation where it's just, it works, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so, but...
1: Yeah, they're, they're definitely being very creative songwriters. Mm-hmm. Within the framework of keeping it a pop song.
0: Very Bach in that
1: way. Yeah, I almost—I was about to say
0: it. <laughs> yeah, well, we did just do
1: that episode like two weeks ago. Yeah, that's, that's probably going to be one of our. Who. This is going to be one of our go-to's now. Oh, that's very Bach. Yeah, it is. So this song was actually not on any record or any oh. any official record. This was on. This was a thing. No, actually, it wasn't that either. It was a. um it was a add-on to a greatest hits compilation, which I always think is such a bold move. You're putting yeah. out a greatest hits, and you're going to put a new song that has never been uh, heard before. It fits. You gotta, you gotta have balls to say this. This song is going to be one of our greatest hits.
0: I think they were right.
1: Yeah, the other song they wrote uh, for that adult education was also a pretty good hit for them as well nice so um yeah it's just it's it's always interesting when people do that because it's like you could put a terrible song on your greatest hits and it would kind of almost ruin the whole thing yeah you gotta you gotta like no 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 that it's a hit if you're gonna put a new song on a greatest hits but yeah this this it definitely works in this case it that explains why on the uh, listening list it's
0: from The Greatest Hits. I'm like, Lucas wouldn't do that for... You know,
1: <laughs> I, was, I thought that you might notice that.
0: Uh, yeah, I was like, hmm, that's pretty... Because, you know, for the, for the music history, it makes sense
1: because, you know,
0: that's there's just no kind of where you're going to find no, their music. Well, albums didn't exist back then. Right, exactly. And so that's why we see a lot of, like, Oh, Beethoven's greatest works or whatever for those episodes, but yeah. never for these.
1: Yeah. Anytime that you see on this kind of episode something from a greatest hits, there's gonna be a reason for it. Like oh. it's either it's it was only available like that, or like there's there's some instances where this like maybe it's the single version. And I usually don't ever consider the single version to be superior to the album version, but mm-hmm. there are rare instances where that is true. Uh, oh. The biggest, the biggest example I can think of is Queens. I want to break free. Real really? For, for some reason, the single version's longer, and that's where that's like true. all of the great synthy magic is. Like that whole synth intro is not on the album version. the album version is weird i don't know why it exists that way but the single version is like far 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 superior well good (laughs) i'm glad they changed it for the single then but we're not talking about queen we're not talking about Queen. as as tempting as that can Uh, be say it isn't so
0: man but yeah uh, how did this song come about
1: um, this was another one that primarily came from Daryl. Okay, and um, he said that he felt that this song kind of um, what one thing we'll act we'll, we'll find is actually very true in a lot of their hit songs is that even though he's talking about a relationship, it's usually a metaphor for how he feels at that point in his life. Mm. And so definitely by 83, because uh, their last big record came out the next year in 84, they were on top of the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so um, they definitely were part of the the glitterati, if you may, but they felt always like they were outsiders mm-hmm. because of the fact that they were a lot older than a lot of the other artists that were big at that time that their image was very different. Um, The way that they approached their songwriting was very different. And so um, say it isn't so kind of Daryl had said that it kind of draws from some of those insecurities that he was starting to feel at that point. Hmm. Because again, they never were chasing hits. They just, eventually realized that they were good at making them they were they were already making the song and they'd be like oh this is pretty cool and then they'd show it to their producer or their manager and they'd be like oh my gosh that's going to be a number one hit and they're like oh okay (laughs) like daryl's not sitting down going i'm I'm gonna write a number one hit right now Mm -hmm. so um and so there's that a lot of the because the whole the whole song is about the fears of losing someone. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know if for sure if she's going to leave him, but he's he's he fears that sh- that he will. And I think that this song is kind of him maybe talking to fame, kind of kind of losing status, mm-hmm. losing their place. Or perhaps it could be that he's talking about his legitimate credentials as a musician. Um, it could go either way, I think.
0: Hmm. Well, it's it's a giant metaphor, so you never
1: really know. The, the metaphor on the next song is, is much more clear. Oh, shall we? We shall. <laughs>
0: All right, well, our next song covered by every Tulsa cover band.
1: <laughs> yes. I
0: can't go for that. No can. Parentheses. Do. Parentheses no can do. All right. So this is off of... Friday. Yes, Bob.
1: I can't go for that. Yes, yes this was awesome. also a number 1 hit and Ooh. I would say that probably at the time this was probably like their defining song. Really? So this was this was this was a mega song at the time. And yeah, I can see it. Um, I mean, just I feel like this song just has a little bit of that extra magic to it,
0: yeah, with that and line at the beginning, especially kind of mm-hmm. let you know what you're getting in for. Very simple, but just exactly, uh, it's just exactly what it needs to be. I keep saying that,
1: but yeah, <laughs> that's just what it is. So this one was actually a uh, an improvised studio moment. No. So they, uh, well, it's <laughs> the like the band just like happened to, but Daryl was just like messing around and didn't r- realize that he was being recorded. And he turned on the drum machine, the exact same drum machine that was on Kiss on My List. Um, it's and again, it's 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 a a preset drum groove from like a low budget keyboard. Like he just That's he just awesome. hit like like you know those little like Casio keyboards that like have like yes. the, the eighty different options. You can hit like a thing and it starts going do do get, do 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 Like he literally did one of those and just hit it and it started going do get get do. And he actually came up with the bass line first on on the on the keyboard. Started just going do 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 do. And then he kind of started to go and just like ooh ooh maybe this could be something. And so he he started looping that and then started putting a chord progression on top of it. And it was just like ooh ooh this is good. Hey John, come here. Get your guitar. Play play guitar line over this. Da 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 and then that's the moment kind of the whole thing came together and then they realized well we're being recorded oh good because we w- we're not going to remember it anyway so oh i can't go for that was born
0: that's and, amazing
1: and then after that he met with Jana. they wrote out some lyrics like that night came back the next day recorded the song and it was done wow they they wow. said it literally took them an hour to do all the vocals on that whole track.
0: That's legendary. Mm-hmm. That's truly
1: legendary. That's amazing. So, wow. that's that's that was one of those songs where it, was, it it mainly came from Daryl, but it was not in the sense of hey, I've been working on this song. Yeah, it was just one of those things that it just it just kind of happened,
0: and. Man, the complex vocals in an hour? I mean, there's some pretty interesting interplay between the
1: BGVs and the main vocal. And there's yes. a saxophone solo. Uh-huh. They had a full-time saxophone player at that time. I mean, but still, like,
0: taking the time to put a saxophone solo over, like, a cheap keyboard drum backing. Like, it's, it's simultaneously low-budget and just perfect
1: yeah. I love Project that. From the 80s then.
0: Yeah. Man.
1: Or at least early 80s before everything got, like, mega produced. Mm-hmm.
0: And his his mm-hmm. voice is so pure. You know, it's cool. I remember when we were doing, um, and you were, like, doing some vocal sliding. And do that because it usually sounds bad, you yep. know. And... 98% of the time, you know, you don't want a vocal slide, um, uh-huh. but I don't know what it is maybe about his voice or the song or something, but that slide is just great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he slides right to the perfect pitch. I mean, he's got, he's in his prime. They're both in their prime, really.
1: Yeah. This is, this is peak Holland Oates at this point. Yeah. And that, his improvisations at the end of this song, I think, are his best.
0: Oh, yeah, that's true. I remember it's, listening to this in the car with you, yeah.
1: He goes to some crazy places.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, like, he he riffs for, like, a solid, like, minute 30. And you don't, and it's like, every bit of it is amazing. Mm-hmm. And he And he somehow keeps coming up with new... Phrases to do. Yeah. It's it's one of those things, out, but man. um this this song is on rock band mm-hmm. and it's one of the toughest songs in the game on vocals.
0: I understand why.
1: It's like it's like the lowest difficulty on every other instrument, but then on the vocals it's like near
0: the end. Wow. It's kinda that's kind of cool yeah. i mean obvious because it's pretty intense you know at the end rhythmically that's kind of what i was mentioning was this song Mm-hmm. he's very much jumping around doing this weird dotted triplet thing i don't even know but maybe that's a drummer question
1: yeah the no 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 yeah and the rain and there's there's where he's like just like almost like picking notes at random to hit on the scale i'm just like how are you hitting each note perfectly when they're like nowhere close to the previous one good point
0: man he's he's got his voice trained i mean they've been going for about you know 10 years at this point at least yeah so there is that so he does have the experience but They've also been going for 10 years and he can still do that. I mean, you can make the argument both ways mm-hmm. that man, and I guess maybe he just knew how to take care of his voice. Yeah. Cause his he voice did. still sounds great. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of uh, musical responsibility, you know, going on with hollow notes just in general, right? Like mm-hmm. John's guitar part is so simple. One note riffs, very simple one note riffs at all but if he had played more it would have damaged the song yeah and if if he had played less then there would have been something missing you know it just and all of the instruments are that way you know none of none of the instruments are really bury or bearing the full weight of the song so really it's the vocals (laughs) really yeah exactly that's just the way it is with every song that's on this list you know i mean you think about like um a band like uh, van halen where like the drums and the guitar are both almost competing for your attention if the vocals you know weren't also there and yeah the, but the have...
1: drums vocals and guitars vying top spot that's what right, makes music right. so interesting and then michael anthony just kind of hangs out in the back
0: well and he does some great bgb's but but that that's what makes that music interesting is the fact that they're all wanting your attention and it's jolting you every which way. It's always very interesting, but you know, I can't go for that. as very interesting in a different way.
1: Mm-hmm. So, and it's
0: sparseness, it's And, and it's, it's just as good. It's just as good.
1: We're going to, we're going to smooth things out for this next song. Yeah. We're actually finally take a step into the seventies period of Holland.
0: Mm-hmm. All right, with the song that you've mentioned, I think multiple times now, "Sarah Smile." Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this is seventy-five. You said,
1: yeah, approximately. Okay. Uh, Yes. Yep. Seventy-five. I was right. Ah,
0: I'm correct. I I love to try and
1: see if I can just get it off the top of my head, but sometimes I gotta. (laughs) Um, So this was this was this was the the first hit. Without oh. without this song, who knows what Holland Oates' career would have looked like? And this and was about of, Sarah. It was um, this. I kind of spoiled a little bit of the story of it, but um, like I said earlier, this was not intended to be a single. It mm-hmm. was uh, put as a B side, which I just think shows that they didn't quite have the instinct yet. Like I mean. It's crazy to think that you don't hear Sarah smile and not go, "Man, that's a hit record." Yeah, because it's not just that it wasn't the A side; it's I to be a B side than it is to be in deep track. Because Indeed. what what the whole point of a B side is that you never you will never release it as a single you usually put all your leftover bad tracks on the B-sides.
0: So that you can spread out your good songs.
1: Yeah, because like if you put one of your great songs on the B-side, well, now you can't put it as the A-side anymore. Mm. As long as it's something remains on the album, you could still potentially release it as a single later. Hmm. B-sides are notorious for being the weakest tracks that a band member has. So that's why I reason a lot of our worst uh, songs on the Bad Music podcast are B sides. That's what Get Trashed is.
0: That's true.
1: That's a B side. That's yeah. that's what they're for. That's where you throw your leftovers.
0: And so, so they, did the producers, not even clue in.
1: I'm not sure what they were thinking. Again, I, it's like they still had in their mind what they felt like needed to be a hit which was more of like their their folky slash um, more kind of upbeat tunes Mm -hmm. it's just it's it's mind-blowing to me that sarah smile was a b-side because it is by far and away the best song on that record and it's it's not a bad record but sarah smile is sits in a different stratosphere
0: Mm -hmm.
1: i mean it's the one when you hear it on the album you're like this this Mm -hmm. is the hit
0: yeah i mean you can definitely tell their influences but Mm -hmm. you can also tell there's a new kind of spice added you know it's not too far i think from their original um you know almost stevie wonder-esque sound yeah but it's just enough to make you pay a little bit more attention. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, it's once again, there's that musical responsibility, you know,
1: you want to, you want to hear another side of Daryl's voice. Yeah. I mean, soft, smooth. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) just it's cause even, even on, I can't go for that, which is a more subdued song. That might be the one he's the most aggressive on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so this this is definitely, it, at this part in the set, we're hearing a completely different side of his, which is a lot more prominent. hmm He doesn't sing like this near as much in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Just because that's just the types of songs they were writing didn't really call for it. And John's high harmonies.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, those... Those aren't necessarily in our first four songs.
1: It's almost like the vocals are well there's there's a good amount of high harmonies well,
0: okay, okay, yeah, but I mean they're not stratospheric
1: no, it's definitely much more prominent here that's true but but they did they were there, and i you can really hear them in uh private eyes
0: mm-hmm. I don't want to say it's almost like they're a different band, but it kind of is.
1: It really, and I mean, they definitely did have a different band with them as well. Mm-hmm.
0: That's true. Different producer, different
1: band, different era, different th- philosophy, really. I think maybe the reason why they didn't believe in this song as much is because this was a very personal song to Daryl. May- it could be that perhaps he didn't feel comfortable with sharing something that was, because again, he wrote it for his girlfriend, Mm-hmm. For Sarah, this was a song mainly to her, and perhaps in his mind, he was thinking that he didn't want to share it with the it being a single.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but man, a good song is a good song. This, I think, that this is just one of the most endearing, sincere love songs in pop music.
0: So, okay. So is it just, is it very simple, just like, I love you, hold my this, hand kind of love song?
1: Yeah, this, this was, this was his love letter to her. That's nice.
0: So were they and already just,
1: together? For they the were, point? no, the relationship was fairly new at this point. I think this was, just, this was probably like that initial bliss period, the honeymoon phase, mm-hmm. where it's just like, you know, it's everything is good. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where he was at uh, that point. I love the flip that he takes in the two verses of, of switching. He starts off with, um, when I feel cold, you warm me. And um, he switches it on the second verse to, when you feel cold, I'll warm you. It's a great way to, to use that that structure and use that melody and most of the same words but like give it a nice little twist.
0: Yeah. And not put them back to back. So uh-huh. it's very dry and uninspired. You know, keep that same
1: kind of uh reciprocated idea. It's such a, it's such a simple change but I feel like the it's one of the most magical parts of the song.
0: Yeah. It is it is really interesting when artists will do that with their lyrics that mm-hmm. there's subtle changes that really change the meaning of that line but don't completely change the musicality or the phrasing of the of the vocals or anything
1: yeah it's it's you and me forever it's not just you giving me love or me giving you love we're both in it together
0: mm-hmm. that is that is nice that is a nice love song mm-hmm I'll give him that,
1: <laughs> well, this song is about the um the birth of a new love, but our final song is one of the great heartbreak songs
0: mm. yes, she's got gone... our longest song it's our longest song. yes, it is, and it's got some pretty interesting uh I guess finale
1: style um musicality to it Mm-hmm. definitely you can tell what the catharsis moment is
0: yes <laughs> it is our final song
1: so this is one that originates with john
0: ah uh,
1: so I john wrote this different. he 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 said and this is more of john's songwriting is that he will be inspired by an initial event but it's not going to be fiercely biographical. So he didn't actually experience a situation where he was in this torment of heartbreak. But the initials uh, incident was that he was going to meet this girl on a first date on New Year's Eve, and she stood him up. Oh. And he just, he said that he, as he was walking home, it was raining, it was New Year's Eve, he was alone, kind of feeling bad for himself and he just came up with that line she's gone I'm gonna have to learn how to face it and it was just like it just kind of like stuck with him he's just like okay so he went back to his apartment and came up with that chorus and that was what he brought to Daryl and just like okay came up with this chorus what do you think and Daryl's just like that's a great song we need to work on this right now well and what Daryl brought to it is he came up with the feel of the song that <laughs> boom, because originally it was played very straight, just you know, <laughs> and he Daryl kind of came up with the with the vibe of the song and kind of turned it into this nice, slow, um, soulful groove. Wow. So, She's Gone is part of their second album, Abandoned oh. Luncheonette.
0: So we're really early.
1: Yes. Although this became a hit after Sarah Smile because it got re-released once they started to get big. Oh, right. Right. Of course. Okay. Because originally they put the sound and it flopped. But I will say that probably of all their 70s records, this is probably their best one. Really? It's, it's become the, the cult classic of Holland Oates records.
0: That's good to know. In case I want to listen to more later <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. it's, it's a very it's a varied record it it still has some musical immaturity to it because again they're still quite young they're still you know trying to figure out what they want to be but I would say that of the early records this one is the most cohesive mm. in fact, if this record had done well, they probably would not have spent so long trying figure out who they were because they were very confident in this record and it was kind of shattering to them when it didn't do well because they were like this is it they're like we could not have made a better record at that time hmm. and it really shook us up when this record didn't do well so this song kind of from what i can tell
0: stands in stark contrast from the rest of the songs we listened to that they're both singing lead during yeah. the verse, kind of. Mm-hmm. And then, but in the chorus, you still have the strong Daler, the Daler, what did I just say? Daryl Hall. <laughs> <laughs> Daryl Hall lead vocals and the really wonderful John Oates um, be, uh, BGVs. But the instruments are doing more interesting things. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's even like eight key changes at the end. Um, <laughs> and then there's there's a pretty long instrumental intro Um, Mm -hmm. a couple of kind of solos. the guitars aren't playing one note riffs necessarily Um, I think the the composition is more complex for them but still that simple hollow notes formula you know it Mm -hmm. doesn't it doesn't feel like they're playing you know dream theater technical prog stuff but, you know, it's not as simple as something like I Can't Go For That. That maybe that was well, part would, of the reinvention.
1: Well, I would say that they probably never had a better session band on than on this record.
0: So that might have been part of it.
1: So, yeah. Uh, when I learned that they had Bernard Purdy playing drums on this, I was just like, what? Oh. he's uh, He's one of the... I would say he's probably the greatest session drummer of all time. I mean, he came up with the Purdy Shuffle, which is what uh, "Fool in the Rain" and Rosanna is based off of. Wow! He came. That, he came that, up with a drum beat that was named, named after him, and became one of the most famous drum beats of all time. The where you've got that that shuffle, but it's also got a that um that uh the, those those ghost notes on the snare and the more complex kick pattern instead of just like a normal shuffle. Hmm.
0: Wow. So, okay.
1: Yeah, Bernard Purdy, he's he's played with so many of the great uh artists. So, and he's and the you, one being musically responsible here. Not the um, over- well yeah he is he is definitely not playing but it's just they had that level of talent playing with them yeah and they had they had a great producer in that beginning period named Arif Martin who um just he he came from a old school um pop mentality of from like the 50s and 60s and was and was just someone that knew how to like get great um string arrangements and he was someone that knew the different points to go, okay, we need to, we need to add this here, add that there. He produced their first two records. And um, Daryl and John definitely credit him with kind of teaching them a lot about great pop songwriting. Wow. So okay. all, the, all those string and horn arrangements that are in that song was done by him. Nice. Are those real strings? Yep. Awesome. They didn't have the technology at that point to be able to replicate that with these. I
0: don't know my synth history.
1: Really, really, the 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 best thing you had at that time was a mellotron, and we all know what a mellotron sounds like. True.
0: I would
1: I would say really not until like the eighties and nineties did you have keyboards that were able to convincingly replace a uh a string to where you can't tell the difference
0: mm-hmm.
1: so if you hear something from the sixties seventies and and through most of the eighties that sounds like legitimate strings and horns, then it, chances are it was Well, that's a bit more of a recent uh technological achievement.
0: So there's a lot of people on this song then,
1: yes. <laughs> wow so it's a good thing that it eventually became a hit right? right. John Oates s- believes that this is their best song really he he's if not that he definitely it's definitely his favorite one mm. because he feels like that this was kind of the moment when they became Holland Oates
0: mm-hmm
1: that this was that he he recognized that this was their first great song. And it was it was writing the song that really made them go, okay, no matter what, we've gotta make it because we can make we've just found out that we can make songs as good as this. Wow. Formative song?
0: That's what I'm saying. He,
1: and definitely he says of the early period that this is the definitive song.
0: Man, so we threw out the um, early
1: Hall Notes episode right from the get-go. Can't do that anymore. <laughs> sure we can. There's still, there's still other good stuff. But this, well, this, this definitely is um, one of the great high moments of that period.
0: I, I'm sure we can, and I cannot wait for that episode
1: man well but for now that wraps up the songs that we're talking about so um we're going to take another short break when we come back we are going to give our final thoughts about holland oats so stay tuned we'll be right back Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We just finished talking about the six songs for our Hall and Oates episode. Those songs were You Make My Dreams Come True, Private Eyes, Say It Isn't So, I Can't Go For That, No Can Do, Sarah Smile, and She's Gone. Now it's time to talk about our final thoughts about Daryl Hall and John Oates. So, Grant, let's start with you.
0: Okay, well... So I started with a six because I appreciated Daryl Hall as a figure. Um, and throughout this episode, discovering which songs I didn't know were Hall and Oates was interesting. <laughs> to say the least, to realize like, oh my gosh, I actually know more than I thought. Listening to these songs was so easy. I mean, for some episodes, I really have to force myself to sit down and analyze the music, but I mean I may have given this this whole set of six songs like five passes and I felt like I knew the songs after that. Uh-huh. Um just like intrinsically because they were so well written. They were very complex and interesting to the ear but they were so well written that they um were picked up very quickly and I really like that aspect of it. It's something that's very interesting. I mean this this type of pop music really is like my kind of pop music, you know. Yeah, um, I agree. That, that almost, you know, Steely Dan, David Bowie is one extreme, and then the Killers maybe another extreme, and this kind of sits, I guess, somewhere in the middle. Maybe not quite. There's, there's a large region, you know, but modern pop music doesn't really fit that. Maybe we'll get into an episode where we do a, a modern pop. Well, we did do Bruno Mars, but, but. I mean, needless to say, like this is this is the kind of music that really will grab me, and I really enjoyed listening to these songs. I really enjoyed hearing the stories about them. I mean, you'll notice for like every single one of these, I wanted to know how it came about, um, and just good musical responsibility. I keep coming back to that musical responsibility of of less is more. It's that weird oxymoron that's just. Been pervading through this whole episode that's so so great, and I kind of want to listen to more stuff. I don't know if I should start with the 80s or the 70s. I'll probably, I'll probably, I can give you one of each. I, well, okay, I'm thinking Abandoned Luncheonette and Private Eyes.
1: That's what I would have suggested.
0: That's see, it was either going to be that, or I was going to go to the greatest hits and then just look at what albums we're pulling from that, but um. Or maybe all three. I could do all three. You never know, depending on how. Our discography, because <laughs> I really like this. I think you know. I don't know enough to be able to put myself at an eight, but man, I'm at a strong seven. I'm at a really. That's
1: strong. always great, especially when it's these genres that I know that you're not like super into.
0: I'm. I'm really not super into this, but I really do like the eighties and that seventies kind of, uh, junction, the late seventies and the early eighties are really, really great. So
1: yeah, they are. What was your favorite song, man? Oh, that's a good point.
0: Um, talking about she's gone. I almost switched to that one, but I kept finding myself singing private eyes, you know, (laughs) all day like today and yesterday, like to myself. Um, And Say It Isn't So is just such a close second to Private Eyes, but man, what a good song. Both of them. So that's my favorite, Private Eyes. All
1: right. right. So, um, obviously (laughs) with with me, I I always have the potential to go up really high because I do get very um, familiar with a large part of the artist's discography, whenever I'm researching them. Uh, I started at a seven with Holland Oats. Man, I heard so many great songs. I wouldn't say it got to the point where worth with some of them where I'm just like, they're starting to influence me. It's music to listen to. So I would say I'm at a pretty solid eight with Holland Oats wow. at this point. That's a good place to be. Yes, it is. Um, Pretty much an eight just means just like, yeah, I I would listen to their records. I would, you know, get hooked on some of the deep tracks. When you get to a nine, I think that that it's not that you love them more, but they start to influence the way that you either look at or play music. I don't think they've gotten quite to that point. Or who knows, maybe they will in the future. But at this point, mm-hmm. I feel like an eight is a great place for them to be. As far as my favorite song, for me, it's a pretty easy decision for I can't go for that.
0: <laughs>
1: it's just, there's something about it that just that extra magic.
0: I don't know. I think, unfortunately for me, it's been tainted by too many bad cover bands.
1: Well, the good thing is I haven't heard those, so...
0: <laughs> every, every time I um, would get to that song, I would, like, mentally be put back into the audience at Los Cabos and going, like, man, okay. <laughs> <laughs> <All> <laughs> right, as, songs far, the as
1: far as the rankings go, all six of these songs are in the top ten. Uh, say it isn't so at oh. number ten. Uh, Private eyes at number seven. She's gone at number six. Sarah smile at number four. You make my dreams at number three, and I can't go for that at number one.
0: Man, so my number one and number two were the
1: number five and number six. <laughs> <on> this <laughs> list again. It's it's also I'm I'm speaking a bit more objectively, but right. also objectively, it's just I don't I think it's it's I can't go for that as just the the most smartly written song that they did right that's true it's the one that's the most unique I feel well what? I have a prediction what's I think,
0: that I think Harry loved
1: Hollow Notes. he did yes and uh, in particular he really loved Private Eyes yes Let's go. But he, he kept asking me, uh, "Why is it called Private Eyes? Because eyes aren't private parts." <laughs> I was like, "That's not what it means, Harry." <laughs> and okay. Private Eyes was also Kelly's favorite. My wife. Man,
0: wife's. I'm picking all the right songs. I'm noticing yeah. friends.
1: But I do know that uh, I can't go for that as my dad's favorite.
0: Man, okay. I'll
1: I'll work on him.
0: You'll, to, oh, good luck with that. I'll try to bring him to my side. Big generator.
1: <laughs> Move it to the left. <laughs> yeah, in your dreams. <laughs> All okay. right. Well, thank you so much everyone for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you listened to, hit that subscribe button. We've got new episodes every Monday at midnight. Next week we are Doing a bit of an impromptu episode, so uh, my original plan of what was going to be for next week, I am changing. Um, unfortunately, the, actually, the day that we recorded this, we had gotten the the sad news that uh, Slipknot drummer Joey Jordison had passed away, and at the at the too young age of forty six. And so, I'm going to go ahead and spoil that. Next week, we're going to be uh, doing a tribute to him and talking about some Slipknot music so uh, make sure that you tune in for that even if you're not a metal fan uh, it's still going to be a great episode to just kind of honor someone that has legitimately made a big impact in his genre Um, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook we've got a lot of stuff going on there that's where you'll find out you know who we're talking about, when the episode is available, and then some other fun things along the way. It's also a great place to let us know what artists you want us to cover in the future. We always try to do each month an episode that is picked by one of our listeners. So if you want to get your favorite group onto the podcast, that's the best way to do it. Um, We've got description of the episode one of them takes you to our spotify playlist where you can listen to these songs uh and the other one takes you to our patreon page where we uh get to do our bad music podcast segment it's one of the most fun things that we do so you'll want to make sure that you go and check that out and that's it i'm lucas i'm grant keep on listening to good music